Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yirimeyeva, with an interview for the Historical Fiction Channel today. I'm joined by C.W. Gordner, the prolific author of historical novels which place women at the heart of the narrative. These include Mademoiselle Chanel, The Confession of Catherine de Medici, The Tudor Conspiracy, and The Vatican Princess. But today, we're here to talk about his latest book, which has just been released in paperback this week, the Romanov Empress, a novel of Tsarina Maria Fyodorovna. The protagonist is, of course, the penultimate empress of Imperial Russia, who was born a Danish princess, originally engaged to marry one heir to the Russian throne, but ended up marrying another. She was the sister of Britain's Queen Alexandra and thus is a great, great aunt of Queen Elizabeth II. She is, of course, also the mother of Nicholas II, but unlike her two sons and five grandchildren, Maria Fyodorovna survived the Russian Revolution. Her fascinating life is brought expertly uh, to life in this very tight and well-crafted novel, and I'm delighted that it brings C.W. Gordner to the New Books Network today. C.W., welcome. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit, before we dive into Maria Fyodorovna, tell us a little bit about your own story and how do you come to write historical fiction so closely focused on famous historical women? Uh, Well, I was raised in southern Spain. Um, My mother's from Spain, and so I lived really near history. There was a ruined castle that had belonged to Isabella of Castile that I used to go play in, in fact. And so um, growing up, I always really loved history. And I always was fascinated by it and interested in it. And um, one of the things that I loved the best about historical fiction when I was growing up, I used to read, I was a voracious reader um, because I grew up in the last years of Franco's regime in Spain where we only had three TV channels and they went off at three o'clock in the afternoon. So it was really great for me because I became a reader. Um, And I I discovered the novels of Jean Plady, who was a very prolific English historical fiction novelist um, who wrote about all eras and, and very, a, very, a large number of novels. And I became obsessed with them because they would bring history to life in a way that I found really interesting because it was about the people. So it, was, it went beyond the facts. It went beyond the, just um, the dry stuff. It started exploring the emotion, the passion of living in the past. And Conversely, I also was always a writer. My mom says I, I started, as soon as I learned to read and write, I began writing little stories and it was just something I did. So the, the two passions sort of merged um, when I decided to start writing a novel. And women in history always interested me because I always felt like women were always given the short stick in history. You never sort of heard a lot about their accomplishments or some of the big women like Elizabeth I and, and women like that you did hear about, but there were so many other stories that, that hadn't been told. And, and it sort of, I gravitated to those stories in a way that it sort of fueled my writing. Um, 
Well, Jean, Jean played is very good at that, isn't she? Um, she she puts women at the heart. Yeah, of but she also wrote a lot about the men too, and she wrote. She yeah. did. Yeah. Um, it was a different time in publishing when um, I think the genre was much smaller and she sort of had so much success that she could explore just all across all eras. It's much more different. It's much more different, different and difficult today to do that. And why is that? Why is it so much more difficult today? I think publishers believe that historical fiction is, is mainly a female genre. Um, a lot of studies have been done or demographics have been released where 90% of historical fiction readers are women. Um, I think they think that women mainly want to read about women, um, Mm -hmm. not about a male protagonist. I know it's very difficult to sell sell a male protagonist in the historical fiction market. Um, And I think that with the success of uh, the novel, uh, Philippa Gregory's The Other Boleyn Girl sort of brought in a resurrection of the genre. It, it goes through va- valleys and, and peaks. I mean, mm-hmm. the genre's had up, de- up times and down times. But Philippa Gregory's Other Boleyn Girl sort of broke new ground. It was sort of a new type of historical fiction novel. It sort of opened up this whole um, Pandora's box of women's stories that could be told in mm-hmm. this particular sort of way. Um, we focused very much on the personal um, aspects of their lives. And so... I think publishers have sort of gravitated to that type of story and it, and still gravitate to it a lot less now than when I was first published. Um, I still have ideas rejected when I propose novels and oftentimes there are ideas that I, when I want to write about a male character. Well, that's interesting. But it also historical fiction seems to have, be having an explosion on TV at the moment, um, including a Philippa Gregory, uh, the Spanish yes. princess. Seem to yes, um, it's still challenging though. I've had uh, the last queen was optioned for by some producers, and they had a very difficult time getting support for it. I've just had an option on about Marlena Dietrich, so hope um, it's very challenging. I mean, it is a popular genre, but it's also a very expensive one um, to make. So. Um, it, certain stories will always come to the surface, but they're often the most popular ones. Like I just saw the Amazon is doing a sort of a docudrama on the Romanovs, on the last Romanovs. And I found yeah, Netflix. And I found that really interesting that, that they're taking sort of a docudrama approach to it. Yes. Uh, we haven't yet got to the point where there's an actual um, good sort of Downton Abbey of the Romanovs. And it, it I, I can't think why, but that that's a nice segue into uh, your material, um, which is the Romanoffs, and and you, yours is not a documentary; um, it's a it's a novel. Um, what first drew you to Maria Fyodorovna? Uh, Alexandra seems to get all of the oxygen when we're talking about Romanoffs, um, but you chose uh, Nicholas's mother, and I'd I wonder why. Well, it was it was by accident. I actually, when I decided to write a book about the Romanoffs, I wanted to write about Alexandra. Um, and uh, as luck would have it, because of the way I work, um, and this isn't to sound airy-fairy, because I'm like the least airy-fairy person in the world, but to live with a woman, to write a woman in the first person, the way I work, I, I need to feel like I've been invited in. I mean, I can do all the research and know all the facts and, and know what I want to do with the story, but in order to get inside of her skin and live with her for a year to 18 months that it takes me to write a novel... She needs to cooperate. I, I mean, it has to be a process where I sort of feel like I disappear and she takes charge. 
And with some characters, it's, it, it takes a little bit of time for that to happen. Um, with other characters, they come in right away. Alexandra just refused to cooperate. Um, I, well, that doesn't that doesn't surprise. Well, me. no, it, it didn't <laughs> surprise me either. <laughs> that's knowing like, what I knew about her. I was like, well, but every time Maria Fedor never walked into the room, my writing came alive, and I began to realize that that was really the story I should be telling. And once I explored, I, I knew enough about her based on what I had researched for Alexandra, but I knew very little about her earlier life. So once I, I went, you know, I paused my writing and went and did the research on that. I, I discovered that that was exactly the kind of story I wanted to tell because Maria comes into the story long before the revolution. So we get to see previous reigns and sort of the events that lead up to the revolution and, the revolution is always sort of depicted as this sort of uh, event that comes up out of nowhere um, and sort of decimates this family. And Marie actually witnessed key moments that were leading to the revolution. And when you look back, you realize that it was building over many years. So she became a perfect vehicle to explore some of those stories. Also, she's just a fascinating character in, in her approach. She also has this outsider perspective on Russia when she first arrives that really helped me as a writer. I, I think that all uh, that's that's so true about her. She had a she was just a, a wonderful character, but she does have an outside perspective because she isn't Russian and she comes into the story when she's what 15, 16? Yeah. Can you can you walk us through yeah. how it all yeah. came about? Because it's quite a story. And you tell it very well in the book. Well I don't want to give away the book, but you know she was a she was a the daughter of a of a minor cadet branch of, da- of Danish royalty. They, they were impoverished as far as royalty goes, <laughs> not, not according to some of our standards. I mean, um, and then uh, Queen Victoria was looking, you know, we all know Queen Victoria is sort of the grandmother of Europe and she sort of was expanding uh, who, who she wanted her family to marry into. She wanted to put as many children and grandchildren on as many thrones of Europe as she could. Um, and, uh, her son and heir, Bernie, met Alexandra and decided, uh, Minnie's sister, Maria's sister, and they, they got married. And that sort of catapulted Minnie into sort of this limelight of the royal marriage market in Europe at the time, where all of a sudden, because of her sister's sort of very stellar marriage, she became very coveted. And she attracted the notice of Russia. And there had been talks before of an alliance between her sister Alexandra and the Russian heir. Um, but Alexandra had chosen to marry Bertie of Wales instead. So that the attention devolved on Minnie. And um, she, uh, you know, this uh, young Russian heir, uh, the Romanovs were extremely powerful. They were the wealthiest dynasty in Europe at the time, certainly. So it came to Denmark to see her and they, they sort of, um, they met and there was a, a mutual attraction between them. And Minnie um, decided that, that yes, she would marry this, this young man. And unfortunately his, he died tragically of meningitis after a fall from a horse. And she ended up marrying his brother because of a deathbed promise that she had made. Legend has it that she had made it to her dying fiance. Uh, there's no, concrete evidence to support that but certainly there's concrete evidence to support that her dying fiance had asked his brother to marry her and her brother sasha his brother sasha took that very seriously so eventually she married sasha and moved to russia she barely spoke the language um she had to convert to the orthodox religion 
Um, she was Protestant. And she sort of plunges into this completely new world where, you know, she has to learn how to become the wife of the new Russian heir and sort of conquer this entire new world, which is the Russian court, Russian society, all of it very different. Russia was really interesting at this time because Peter the Great had westernized um, his court and the city of St. Petersburg to a great extent, but they still had all of this Slavic tradition. Um, that was meshed in it from centuries of the monarchy. So it was sort of a really interesting weave of, of, of rigid etiquette and, and pro- protocol woven with a very Western approach to life. So Minnie really had to navigate all of this in a, in a fascinating way and um, make herself popular because it was, it was incumbent upon her as the wife of the, of the czar's heir and a foreign princess to sort of ingratiate her in society. Right, and she quickly becomes the first lady of Russia because her mother-in-law dies, um, and leaving her as sort of the number one until uh, the czar takes up with someone else, which creates all sorts of problems. Right. Well, the the, the czar's uh, wife um, had been ill with tuberculosis for many years, and and which was a. a, a a serious disease in those times without treatment. And she was spending more and more time out of Russia, going to her villa in Nice and, and other areas. Um, so many became, sort of became the de facto first lady of the court. And she took to it with a lot of vigor. She was very young. She was very energetic. She loved all the lovely things that being a Romanov could provide you. Um, you know, the jewels, the dresses, the parties. Um, and so she, she sort of gained popularity because of the Tsarina's illness. And then, of course, the Tsarina's death, you know, launches the, the, the family into sort of a major crisis. When the Tsar reveals that he's had a long-term lover that he's had children with, and he, a woman who was sort of considered common, that he sort of elevates, um, that, he, that he marries. And the czar, the czar has a large family, um, of which Minnie is, is just a part. Um, there are several brothers, and Sasha doesn't get along very well with all of his siblings. Um, so she really has quite a bit to navigate, and she does it very well, I think. Yeah, well, she, the challenge with Sasha was that he, you know, he wasn't, the czar, being a Romanov had, there were rules as to, you know, there was a, the firstborn was going to be the heir, Sasha was was slated to be in the regiments. Sasha was, by all accounts, he was a big man. I mean, you can see portraits of him, he's a big man. He was, by all accounts, rather boorish and really not interested in court fripperies and frivolities, and he sort of frowned on all of that. He was very Russian in his marrow, um, very non-Westernized in his approach to life. And so Minnie had to navigate sort of getting her husband to sort of get along with the rest of the family by her for you know, creating the bridges. And but he had some very, you know, the biggest problem for the czars were always their family, their the, the ambitions of their family. Everybody, everybody fed at the same trough. And so so to speak. And um Sasha Sasha was very close with his uh brother Vladimir, um, but it was often to his detriment because Vladimir had a very different approach to life. So Minnie Minnie had a lot of family issues to deal with, yes. And that was a challenge writing a novel like this because there's a lot of people. Exactly. And you uh, decided to to show a exchange between Maria and her father-in-law, Alexander II, the czar liberator who emancipated the serfs. 
and you suggest that he's moving towards giving Russia a constitution and this pisses Sasha off. But you suggest in your book that Minnie is, is amenable to it, that, and, you know, coming from a fairly more democratic country um, of Denmark, that makes a lot of sense. Can you tell us why you chose to do that? Well, first of all, most of the monarchies in Europe at this time were constitutional. I mean, the Romanovs were a holdout. Um, so it wouldn't have been foreign to many to have realized that, you know, Russia was a little behind the times. And Russia was very behind the times in many ways, not only just in, in the form of a constitutional monarchy, but in forms of industry and, and you know, Europe was paces ahead of them as far as industrialization goes. And the liberation of the source had created a lot of problems because though, you know, saw, um, Alexander II removed the serfdom, many of these people were illiterate and they were suddenly deprived of their land and of, of, of centuries of a form of life. And they were immigrating to the cities searching for work and were being exploited by new factories that were, were sprouting up. And, and many, because she took over the Tsarina's position as head of the Red Cross had seen a lot of the suffering. So a constitutional monarchy, the way Alexander presented it, which would have been a way to have modernized the way Russia was being ruled, sort of removed the autocracy and create a, a representative body, um, sort of a parliament, would have appealed to many sense of social justice. She, she was a Romanoff and, and not you know, infallible in the way she viewed the world. But she certainly had, again, that outsider perspective where she would see the common suffering going going on in Russia that other Romanovs would have been blind to. Because they sort of, they sort of lived in a gilded bubble where you really had no need to see something unpleasant if you didn't want to. Alexander II is a really interesting czar who I think has gotten um, very little attention uh, but he was very progressive in his views, and it would have, it's very interesting to speculate, you know, what would have happened if he had survived and actually put his constitution into place. But he doesn't survive, no, does he? No, he, doesn't. <laughs> he rather spectacularly doesn't survive um, and is assassinated in 1881. Did you did you visit Russia while you were researching? You no, know, I really wanted to go. Um, I, I always visit all the places I write about, but it proved impossible um, due to my advocacy work. I see. Oh, that's a yes. shame. So I I, I saw more thing. National Geographic specials on Russia. I ever want to see again. <laughs> I, have, I have Russian friends, so um, I did a lot of, uh, you know, handing over my drafts to Russian friends to make sure I was capturing oh, the feel of the country. I think you, you yeah. succeed admirably. I lived in Russia for 20 years, and um, I, I wasn't able to spot a mistake. So there you go. Oh, <laughs> but but yeah. back to Alexander II, I mean, those who've been to, those of our listeners who've been to Petersburg know that there's this magnificent cathedral in St. Petersburg that uh, commemorates the place where um, he was where he fascinated was so, so horrifically. You know, his, his legs are blown off and off they go to the palace. Um, and at this point, I, I, I think you, uh, another character in the book comes into her own, um, who you paint really delightfully. And um, I really enjoyed your portrayal of um, Mikin or the Grand Duchess Maria Pavlovna the Elder, who is Minnie's 
sister-in-law. She's married to this um, brother, Vladimir. Uh, mm-hmm. And you paint her as a formidable character, which I, I feel she was in life uh, as she is in the Romanov em- Empress. Um, I love the way you put her in, right into the narrative sort of, as sort of the classic sidekick girlfriend. Um, and she's a wonderful character for, for Minnie to push against. Can you, yeah. can you talk to us about your choice to use Meekin this? I think we can call her Meekin. Um, yeah. I'm, a, I'm, a little, I'm a little in awe of her. Um, but can you talk about your choice to, to use her in this way? Well, it, it, because when I was reading the, when I was doing the research for the book, you know, it became apparent. I mean, I sort of, I had truncate a little bit of the preparations for Meekin's marriage to Vladimir, because mm-hmm. I had to fit it into, you know, history can be inconvenient when you're writing a novel. <laughs> Things just don't fall into place the way you want them to. Uh, but it took over a year for marriage to take place because there was, Meekin refused to convert to orthodoxy. Um, she had, she was already engaged to somebody. She broke off the engagement because, of course, she saw Romanov and she was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going for the Romanov. Um, she, she comes across from the very beginning is a very strong-willed German princess who definitely knows the bargain she's getting because the, you know, the Romanovs are, are wonderfully romantic, but, you know, being married to a Romanov man brought all kinds of challenges. Um, and so, and Megan sort of went into those eyes wide open. And so I thought, well, this is a, a wonderful character. And we know from history as well, it wasn't, I didn't make this up, that she and, and, and Minnie were sort of frenemies Mika established a rival sort of court, satellite court. She loved to entertain. She she entertained very lavishly. Um, she they built a, a magnificent palace, and um, it sort of made sense that you know she and Minnie would find themselves thrown into the same social world where they're competing with each other at the same time that Mika's going to open up Minnie's eyes to things that Minnie may not see. Um, and at the same time that Minnie has this more, more socially conscious approach to the situation in Russia, which Mikan does not have, um, Mikan's going to open her up eyes to, to things about the Romanovs that Minnie won't necessarily want to see. So it was the perfect sort of relationship to explore so many aspects of, of life at this time for these, for these women. And, and I thought, well, you know, it, it's a shame to let. And plus, you know, Grand Duchess Maria Pavlovna survived the revolution. She did cross the mountains with her Cartier stuff down the bottom. <laughs> she did, didn't she? She's not a little woman who, you know, escapes revolution with her Cartier stuff down her bodice. I mean, what's not to love? I know she's great. She's, she's just a magnificent character, and I and I, I wanted to spend more time with her than, than I than I was allowed. <laughs> right. Well, she, she, unfortunately, she's not a lyrical heroine, Mikan, but, she's, no. Um, no. but she is such a formidable character. And um, her marriage, of course, uh, produces the line that currently um, believes themselves to be the, the curators of the Russian throne, um, another Grand Duchess Maria. Um, but I loved the way you put them in parlors and, and, intimate settings and sneaking cigarettes and um, sort of talking about stuff. I thought it, it really came to life in a way that I think probably very, very, very the way it, it might've been between the two of them. Well, yeah, I mean, women, women met, you know, in parlors and, and had tea and, 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 and gossip was, was the life's blood of, of courts, especially at this time. Yeah. And so Mika has always got her ears out for a juicy tidbit. <laughs> 
and then um, I wanted to spend a little time before we dive into Maria's horrific relationship with Alexandra, which is just kind of drives the second half of the book um, with uh, Minnie, I, the Maria Fyodorovna uh, has many children, um, including two daughters. And you did a really great job kind of parsing them out because they were quite different characters. Um, and in the book, they play different roles. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about Ksenia and Olga um, and how you decided to do with them what you did. Well, again, you know, my books are, are, are historical fiction, but they're driven by, by what we know. And fortunately with the Romanovs, there's a great deal recorded about their personalities, which isn't always, I'm not always that fortunate with characters that I write about. Um, often there's very little known, but there are letters, there are, you know, we know that Xenia was raised, you know, very pampered and, and sort of um, her first daughter. Um, and then she suddenly, you know, became very stubborn about who she wanted to marry. Um, and she sort of, fires the first volley in sort of this cascade of, of Minnie's children actually deciding that they're not going to listen to their parents about who they're going to marry. They're going to marry who they want to marry. Um, and so Xenia sort of becomes this, she becomes rebellious, but at the same time, you know, she has a, her own challenges in her own marriage. So um, she can't be as supportive of her mother's trials as, Minnie probably would have liked. Minnie, Minnie was, you know, she has wonderful qualities, but she could be a very demanding and controlling mother. Um, yeah, I think especially the daughters. The daughters. She, she yeah. really wanted them yeah. to so like, There had to always be a daughter present. Yeah. Olga is just rebellious and, and so many, what, Olga's one of my favorites because, you know, she really did not want to run the gamut of the, of the balls and the, sort of with the balls, the coming out balls were sort of the debutante parties of the Romanov grand duchesses. And she sort of did not want to have a piece and parcel of any of this. Um, she loved um, art. She was, um, she sort of captures the flavor of the beginning of the 20th century where there was so much interest in new art and, and new, you know, the new it's a completely new world and yet she makes this disastrous choice of who she's going to marry she sort of says yes to the first person who asks just to sort of get out of the way <laughs> and um that turns out to be right. a disaster and yet you know rather than sort of buckling it up and, and dealing with it and sort of not putting a good face on it which was very much what women did in those days olga and her husband separate which is you know Minnie is beside herself at the scandal. Um, Paul decides, you know, I'm not going to do this and, and I'm not going to stay married to this man. And, and then she falls in love with somebody who's completely inappropriate for her, according to Minnie. Um, you know, a man who's of noble lineage, but on the lower end and proceeds to not royal, not royal, not royal. and proceeds not to royal. have a, a loving, um, enduring marriage with him. So the daughters are, what's interesting about Minnie's children is that um, they're all so different in their personalities. And, and you see flashes of both Minnie and Sasha in them. And yet the way they're molded by their circumstances, by their world around them, really affects who they become as people. And, um, and that really drives the narrative right. in a certain way because Minnie, Minnie can't control that. She can't control what her children are experiencing outside of the home and, and how they are, um, you know, unlike Victoria who managed to shackle 
a couple of daughters to her skirts. Minnie's not able to do it. No, and 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 the um, the final child, Misha, also creates marital strife. Um, oh yes. yeah, yeah, that, that is possibly the worst scandal. Um, well, yes, because Misha refused to marry, you know, the slew of princesses that were willing to walk barefoot across Europe to be his bride. <laughs> He decides that he loves the regiments, and you know he's he's a he's was very good looking, um, and 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 a charmer, and you know very much a Romanoff, and right. he falls in love with the wife of a fellow officer in his regiment, um, who's already been divorced once, and um, with Natasha, and creates an incredible scandal because the Romanoffs were not allowed to marry without the Tsar's leave. The Tsar had to give permission for marriages. Um, you know, it was still, like I said, you know, a, a very controlling way of life. And, and Misha well, refuses to listen when he's told he can't marry this woman. Yeah, but he sneaks it in Serbia. He, yeah, he sneaks it. They go off on vacation, as they often did. They all took off for Europe. Um, they went to France, and then he sort of snuck off with Natasha and got married and got himself exiled for a while. Right. Uh, the, tra- but it, but- the tragedy is that... Um, he would have survived if he had stayed in exile. Right. And of course, his his marriage um, means that he is no longer in the line of succession, right. which creates in Minnie's nuclear family a huge issue, doesn't it? Well, yeah, because at that time, her son Nicholas was on the throne, and, and uh, they already knew that Nicholas's son Alexei was sick, hemophiliac. And so the fact that Misha had sort of created this scandalous situation where he was being barred from the succession, there was no heir and a spare um, at this time. The succession was male, and so there was no spare. Um, Misha was always sort of the, the default spare. And it's... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And, and so it's such a it's such a I don't know if it's an irony and everything, but Xenia has like what six sons? Um, I think it's six. Yeah. And poor Alexandra, yes. Nicholas's wife, you know, has daughter after daughter after daughter, and then finally has this son that then has hemophilia. So it's it's just poor Alex. I mean, poor. In a, I understand she didn't let you in, but poor Alexandra. In a way, you have to feel for her. Well, yeah, we, we do feel yeah. for her. I mean, you know, first of all, she's not the winner of the genetics lottery. Um, which wasn't understood in those days, but you know, and she, yeah, and she suffers because she comes into the story at the worst possible moment. Her sense of timing is yeah. is terrible, and it isn't her fault. But this is when Sasha is dying of kidney failure. Um, right. Well, there'd already, there'd already been trouble. Um, you know, Nicholas really. You know, a lot of the. A lot of the situation was driven by Nicholas. Nicholas had met her earlier on when her sister married um, Sergei, one of Sasha's brothers, and um, they had found a mutual attraction in each other. They had a lot of similarities in their characters that, that attracted them to each other. Um, 
And Nicholas sort of was determined that this was the woman he was going to marry, despite you know repeated arguments with his family and Sasha putting his foot down several times and saying he wouldn't grant permission. And and why not? So, why not? I mean, she had a perfect pedigree. She um, uh, not, you know. not according to Sasha, uh, no. and not according to Minnie. Uh, what's ironic about the situation, I think, is that Minnie came from circumstances quite similar to those that Alexander came from. Uh, you know. Alexandra was the daughter of uh, daughter of Victorious, so it wasn't like you know she wasn't pedigree, but she came from a, a, a minor German principality. Um, there wasn't a lot of money there. Um, Alexandra's because of Alexandra's mother's early death and sort of Alexandra was sort of raised under the shadow of Queen Victoria, who sort of guided. Uh, Alice was, according to history, Victoria's favorite daughter. We all know that after Victoria lost Albert, there's a great change in her. Um, she becomes, you know, positively funereal and <laughs> and reclusive and um, obsessive about privacy, and and she inculcates all of that stuff into Alexandra, who's a very young girl at the time. So Alexandra's this prematurely aged psychologically girl who's emotionally withdrawn and reclusive with reclusive tendencies with a very Victorian way of looking at the world. Um, she was very gauche. Um, Minnie and Sasha just saw a disaster because Nicholas was already very timid and withdrawn. Nicholas wasn't a Romanoff in many ways in his personality. He wasn't bombastic. He wasn't given to, you know, chasing ballerinas and, <laughs> drinking vodka and all the things that Romanoff men were known to do. He was bookish and withdrawn and he really wasn't the right person to inherit the throne. And so the fears of the parents were that coupled with Alexandra, this would be a marriage that would just, these two would just like, which is exactly what they did. You know, these two are going to withdraw from the world yeah. and the Russian stars needed to be present. Um, for all of their neglect of their people and sort of the amount of poverty and illiteracy and just sort of the many social problems that Russia underwent under the last Romanovs, there was a great joy and love in the public appearance of the Tsar. And it was essential that the Tsar be seen and be viewed. I mean, they didn't call them babushka, little father and little mother for nothing. And, you know, Alexandra and, and, and Nicholas were just, completely ill-suited to those roles. And and it's very hard because they arrive, she, Alexandra arrives, as they say, behind the coffin. Uh, right. Well, I saw newspapers, there are still newspapers on microfilm where, you know, the, the newspapers in St. Petersburg were calling her the funeral bride. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> she, you know, she, Nicholas called for her as his father was dying because no czar could be declared czar without a wife. Um, she came um, she certainly, she certainly suffered from the circumstances. Um, right. she also had a, a very poor sense of, uh, etiquette. I mean, she was determined to marry Nicholas just as, as determined as he was to, to marry her. I mean, there certainly wasn't a moment in any of the letters that were between them where she was like, well, maybe this isn't the best time for me to show up. Let's give it a couple <laughs> months. Um, I mean, you know, she packed her bags and she was there. I mean, she arrived at the villa where Sasha was dying in the Crimea and, you know, is on Minnie's doorstep to Minnie's horror, which is what I show in the novel. So you do. the relationship is gets off on a bad foot from day one. Right. And then, of course, they have to move in with Minnie, which isn't ideal. Right, yeah. because the, the 
after the assassination attempts, the sort of the explosion of the hall of the Winter Palace where they tried to take out several members of the Roanoff family, Sasha had decreed that no one was going to live in the Winter Palace anymore. So it, it was in need of renovations in order to accommodate the new czar. And so they move in with Minnie, who's newly widowed. Zenya and her husband are living there as well. Zenya was with a child. Minnie has all her kids under her roof again. That's something she loved. But, you know, you've got to live with mom. Right. And, and, or mother-in-law. Uh, yeah, and mother-in-law. And uh, Alexandra proceeds to create tension because she, rightfully so, I mean, you know, to give her, you know, call it, give her her due, she didn't want to be living in Nicholas's bachelor apartments. She didn't want to be having to, she had to basically ask Minnie for permission for anything. Um, it just became a very difficult situation. Um, Alexandra, I, I she comes across in the book probably less sympathetically than I feel for her personally. But again, it's not my feelings about her. It's how Minnie felt about her. Right. Um, Do you think there was ever a, a possibility that the two of them could have gotten along if the circumstances had been different? Or, yeah. or were they just two very different women? No, they were just antithetical. I mean... Yeah. Um, First of all, the circumstances would have had to have been vastly different, as in Sasha didn't die. Sasha lives to a ripe old age, and, um, you know, then maybe the marriage with Alexandra would have worked because Alexandra would the, 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 the big challenge for Alexandra was she was, unlike Minnie, who married Sasha and had many years as the Sardana, as the, the, the wife of the Tsar's heir, she had many years to prepare to get to know Russia, to, and she made a lot of effort. So by the time she becomes Tsarina, she becomes Empress, although it's unexpected and it's in a situation of great tragedy, she's had many years in Russia. She sort of knows what's expected of her. Also, because she had been serving as sort of de facto first lady of the court because of the Tsarina's illness, she sort of had the training. Alexandra finds herself newly wed. A foreigner in a country she doesn't know at all, where she barely spoke the language, suddenly she's the Tsarina. And she's supposed to step into the formidable shoes that Minnie is allegedly supposed to vacate. Well, Minnie's still a very young woman at the time. She was in her 50s. She wasn't about ready to say, yeah, here's, you know, here are my jewels, here are my slippers, you know, go at it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Alexandra, to her discredit, didn't really play the game of, well, you know, if I bow down to my mother-in-law and listen to her advice and seek out her advice, I'm going to have a much easier time of it. Right. Alexandra sort of comes from that Victorian perspective of, you know, I'm loyal. I don't have to make an effort. Everybody has to move around me. Right. And uh, yeah, hmm. that creates a lot of dissension. Right. So I don't think we could have gotten along unless, well. Well, things have been super different. Super different. Yes. <laughs> and then, and then, of course, the the real tragedy strikes, and um, the baby Alexei has hemophilia, and you um, unroll that rather slowly. Minnie becomes aware of it not immediately, but but no. sort of, and that that's an interesting choice to make. Well, they were aware of it immediately. They didn't know at first what was going on. His um, his umbilical cord, the little scab. Um, from having his umbilical cord cut, wasn't healing. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was the first sign that things might not be right. There was certainly an awareness of this disease running in the royal family, but it, always, it ran in Victoria's family. Right. So um, until everybody put two and two together, and they were like, wait a minute, Alexandra's Victoria's granddaughter. She had a brother who died of this. Um, 
you know, there was a lot of denial too. I mean, it's not just a river in Egypt. It was running rife through the Romanov court. And Alexandra and Nicholas kept it a secret for a while. They didn't want anyone to know. Um, right. It wasn't until Alexei had his first major attack, um, you know, where the umbilical cord simply wasn't healing that, and Minnie shows up, that she sort of just let it on the secret, and she swore to secrecy. Um, again, not to, it wasn't what she would have wanted. She believed that the boy's illness should be made public. Um, mm-hmm. She believed it would win sympathy from the people, and God knows at that point, Alexandra really needed some sympathy. Um, but mm-hmm. they, they, they just chose to keep it a private, a private situation. That's what fuels so much of the tragedy that comes later was this insistence on this is a private affair. No one can know the boy is ill. Um, it, it's what leads to respite. Of course. And, and there's, there's very little um, interaction between Minnie and Rasputin, but she clearly doesn't have the time of day for him. And, and I love the way you had her kind of putting him in his place a few times. Right. Well, the thing about it was, was that um, you know, when you're writing a novel about the last Romanovs, you know, Rasputin is always going to come up. And I think a little Rasputin goes a long way, <laughs> um, but a lot of people don't feel that way. And But the research, you know, I, I, writing historical fiction is, I have to be careful. Um, I can't, if someone, if I have a documented incident where I know someone was somewhere, I can't make them be somewhere else. And maybe, for example, there was no documented incidents anywhere I searched that indicated that she ever laid eyes on Rasputin, that she ever met him in person. And Mm -hmm. I was like, well, this is going to be a problem because I know my editor is going to want to, we're going to, everyone's going to want to see Rasputin. So I actually had to do this really um, interesting research thing. I had to figure out when Minnie was returning from a trip, Minnie was going abroad a lot at this point to visit family and basically to get away from Russia because things were just getting really difficult. There was an episode that Alexei had where I knew Rasputin had been summoned to the palace to see him. And I knew that Minnie had just arrived from Europe at the time. And it was customary for Minnie to go see Nicholas and Alexandra and her granddaughters shortly after she arrived from Europe because she'd been away for months on end. And so I was like, well, this, this is, seems like a likely place where she may have run into Rasputin. And so that's the one time that we see him with her. Right. Um, mm-hmm. She would not have had the time of day for him. I mean, you know, Rasputin was a very yeah. mysterious character. Well, we all, it wasn't that he was a dirty peasant so much as, he was just unhygienic as a rule. Not all peasants in Russia were unhygienic, but it's known that he was particularly smelly. And, um, <laughs> he didn't bathe very often, which was unusual because the Russians had public bathhouses and, and tended to be, uh, it was tended to be very cleanly, clean oriented. Um, and, you know, he was just sort of uncouth in his approach to, to people. And um, so that moment where Minnie meets him and he sort of, utters the words that he utters to her, you know, she would have just found him repellent. And what comes later when she discovers that, you know, Alexander's been consulting him and that he's meeting with her granddaughters and he's sort of, you know, coming in under this guise of a spiritual counselor when he was known already for being a satyr, you know, uh, for betting women left, right, and center and with a wife and children left in Siberia, you know, none of that would have sat well with Minnie at all. Um, and as we know, what comes later just sort of fuels that um, because Alexandra sort of loses all sense of 
of boundaries around Rasputin. She's driven by fear of her, of her child, which I completely understand. She was desperate for, for a cure, for, for anything that would, that would answer the plight of what Alexei was going through. And Rasputin seemed to offer that. And to what extent do you think Nicholas believes in it? Because it's, it's always interesting to me. I think he, he's not as um, passionately uh, believing in Rasputin's right. powers, but he kind of goes, like, like so many instances with Nicholas, he's willing to kind of just anything for a peaceful life. Well, I think with Nicholas, part of the, one of the challenges was um, once the bloom of the rose faded on the marriage. Now, I, there, about many of their letters have been published, the letters of Nicholas and Alexander. And there's no question that behind closed doors, she was a hot tamale. <laughs> I mean, they had a very they healthy did. sex they life. Did. Um, they did. I mean, and her letters are full of, you know, she. They really liked each other. There was definitely chemistry there. But as with every marriage, and you know, once that fades a little bit, and you start realizing that you're living with an actual person, you know, Alexander could be extremely annoying. Um, she was very hypochondriac. Uh, she was very controlling. Um, I mean, many pales in comparison to Alexandra and, and her level of control, her control issues. And so Nicholas sort of started to, starts to adapt this weary husband reaction to, oh, better not say anything, just let her do whatever she wants, you know, because she, she was known for flying into really high-level tempers, um, which is very much in stark contrast to her public sort of persona, which was removed and almost icy. Mm. Um but like many people who are very controlling um, of their emotions, when they come out, it's a sort of volcanic. Um, so, you know, Alex, Nicholas sort of gives in to this, you know, sort of obsession around Rasputin. Um, it isn't until the incident in Spala in Poland, where Alexei almost died, that I think he really began to believe in Rasputin. I think it's after that incident where Rasputin's hold on the family becomes sort of absolute. Um, and again, uh, you know, I, I believe that Rasputin had something. Um, I don't think it was supernatural. I think there are a lot of explanations for, for how he affected Alexei's illness. Um, and I, I don't discount that he had, there was merit there. Um, we know that Alexander, for example, took an early form of aspirin for her lumbago, which is a form of sciatica. Well, she was giving it to Alexei. Well, we all know that aspirin thins the blood. So if right. you give a hemophiliac boy aspirin when he's in the middle of attack the blood's going to flow faster it's going to bleed more well rasputin told her to give him no medicines that probably helped um rasputin had a way of sort of talking to the boy that lowered his blood pressure it's also possible that alexi had a form of hemophilia that wasn't full hemophilia there are grades and degrees of it Hmm. and it's possible that he didn't have a foot where he was able to overcome because for example incidents like the one in spala should have killed him right um and and they didn't they yeah. didn't. He didn't die from a hemophilia attack, and he had several bad ones. But he didn't have as many as frequently as many true hemophiliacs have. So it's likely that he may have had sort of a lesser version of it. And there's been a, there's been medical. I actually consulted medical literature, which just tells you the lengths that one will go, where yes. we discuss the case, Alexei's case, um, based on modern knowledge of hemophilia. To sort of get a sense of what was going on there. So I really think Rasputin brought benefit, but you know, what he brought was so far highly valued than the detriments. 
that's when things became problematic. Oh dear. And then of course, um, the war, uh, and Rasputin gets really gets his feet under the table, doesn't he? Well, yeah. So, you know, the revolution's been brewing for a while now because people are getting really sick of the czars and the fact that, you know, when you've got no bread on the table and there's no work and your family's starving, all of a sudden the czars don't look so much fun anymore. Um, and, you know, then Nicholas makes a series of disastrous decisions. Um, the empire at this point, the Romanov Empire is crumbling. I mean, you know, you're entering a modern age where they lose their holdings in Manchuria. Some bad decisions are made that cost a lot of Russian lives um, in the military. And, you know, popular sentiment starts to turn against the czar. Um, Nicholas was a good man. Um, his tragedy was that he was a bad ruler. He was an ineffective ruler. He didn't ever want to be czar. I mean, it is documented that he actually did say that to his cousin, Sandro, as his father was dying, that he didn't know how to be czar and he didn't want to be czar. Right. And it's sort of, you know, when you're thrust into a position where you don't want to be this person, this thing, this ruler, um, it becomes extremely difficult. And But he also has a little bit of Alexandra's unwillingness to adapt and listen and learn. Um, he always wanted to take the easy way out. And so by the time World War I breaks out, Russia's not in a good place, economically, socially, um, and it's very ill-prepared militarily for the might of the Germans. I mean, the Germans surprised everyone because, you know, they tended to do that. Um, but especially Russia. Russia was way behind the times in terms of how dealing with, with the war. And so um, you have Nicholas listening to Rasputin's recommendations as to through Alexandra. There's no evidence that Rasputin ever sat down with Nicholas and said, do this, do that. It, it was often, it was always imparted through Alexandra in the guise of spiritual counsel. Right. But basically, Alexandra starts controlling his cabinet, starts telling him who to appoint to his cabinet, Nicholas's cabinet, and who to withdraw. And oftentimes, who, he, who, he's, who to fire or who to withdraw from his cabinet are the very men Nicholas needs to be listening to, because they're the ones that are opposed to the policy that he's undertaking. Right. Um, Alexandra surrounds him by yes-men, many of them mm-hmm. suggested by Rasputin. So then you get into a situation where you've got a czar who's being told by everyone that what he's doing is right and what he's, what he's doing is not right. And um, it's being, he's being seen as being dictated to by this, as to take your words, this dirty peasant. Yeah. Who no one can quite figure out exactly what his role is in the royal family. Right, because they don't know yeah. that the boy is sick. The scandalous letters that Alexandra wrote to Rasputin have been released. They've been published. Everyone's saying, oh, well, she's sleeping with the dirty peasant. When you read the letters, they are very suggestive. Mm-hmm. I don't believe there was ever an erotic relationship between Rasputin and Alexandra. Uh, that, it just wasn't in her character at all. Mm-hmm. There was one man for her, one man only, and that was Nicholas. Right. But the letters are, are couched in that very Victorian pseudo-romantic longing to be in your arms sort of language, which was, which was just like, it was so scandalous for, for those letters to be made public and for her to have actually written them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like, hello, girl, what were you thinking? Oh, no. <laughs> um, so the whole situation becomes catastrophic with World War I. It's, it's interesting to note that without World War I, the Bolshevik Revolution may not have been as horrifying as it was. Mm. It's this combination of elements that come into play. The war, the war, um, the fact that um, Nicholas is really can't get his 
crap together. The mm-hmm. situation with Alexander and Rasputin, it all comes to a head. It's like it's it's like all these disparate elements align right at the time that this world war is going on. And then when the revolution erupts, there's no stopping it. And Icarus really makes some terrible decisions at moments when he could have curtailed or sort of circumvented the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, he does indeed. He does, he does, he does indeed. indeed. And then, you know, we, we kind of spiral towards um, the, the tragic end. Nicholas and Alexandra and their children are sent to Siberia um, where they are murdered. Uh, in 1918, but Maria Fyodorovna survives. She heads down to the Crimea, and I I loved the uh, scenes with Felix Yusupov oh, yes. and um, that, 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 that Was that fun to write? Well, I love Felix Yusupov. I mean, I just he's wonderful. I fell in love, fell in love with him. Um, first of all, how can you not love you know a bisexual cross dressing man who's like one of the wealthiest? He was wealthier. They were wealthier than the Romanovs. You know, he right. was the sole heir to this immense fortune. He was extremely extravagant and bohemian and just wild when he was younger. He also brings, I mean, it was important to me to discuss sort of the issues that were going around, because uh, I think they're so relevant in today's Russia, around um, LGBTQ rights. You know, Sergei was was known to be gay um, and suffered mm-hmm. greatly, Ella's husband, um, Alexandra's sister's husband. Right. Um, and suffered greatly for it. And Felix was just sort of flagrantly open about, you know, he sleeps with everyone. And, um, right. and yet, he's also one of the most courageous because he's he's one of the ones who, you know, he's one of Rasputin's murderers. Um, mm-hmm. And yes. I love the fact that he, he showed so much courage at a time when so many, I mean, you know, he went back to St. Petersburg to try to get, he, he did get Minnie that portrait. He brought back jewels that his mother had left in the vault. It, it's a, sort of this, this, all this, you see the Romanovs at this moment, you know, they're down to what they've got on their backs and they're hiding out in the Crimea and they know that they're coming for them at some point. And we forget because we see everything in hindsight that, that no one knew exactly what had happened to those that had disappeared. That Misha was one of the first to be taken because he refused to with Pacina. Um, he's taken with his secretary, Brian Johnson, his English secretary, and disappears. Um, he's the first to die, in right. fact, but we didn't know that at the time. And then, you know, sort of, there's this systemic right. isolation. First, the Romanovs, all Romanovs were re- required to register. Then all of a sudden, they start getting taken, and they're disappearing into various places. And but no one really knew. We don't have cell phones. We don't have internet. Um, these people are cut off in the Crimea right. from all this information. So, Felix is sort of bringing news that, that was important. And I sort of had never right. known that there had been this white Russian officer, this Canadian officer, who actually was in Yekaterinburg, you know, just weeks after Nicholas and Alexandra and the children were murdered. So and I had no idea that this man had come to the Crimea to speak to Minnie. So um, those, 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 those events um, in the Crimea... They were difficult to write because suddenly you're you're in the position yeah, you're in the shoes of this woman of this mother whose whose children have disappeared and are, and whose right. grandchildren and they're being murdered. Um, right. It was a, it's, it's terrifying. It's, it's terrifying. terrifying. And at the same time, you know, you wonder, you know, 
what she was thinking at the moment. You know, I had to sort of put myself in those shoes and think, well, you know, did she ever stop and think, oh my God, if only I had done this, if only I had done that. And Right. Um, I Don't you think that they all felt uh, that it would all be over soon, that it was a, it was a temporary blip, that they would be headed back to St. Petersburg? I, think, and, I yeah. think Minnie had a deeper sense that this, because Minnie had been through two other uprisings, not nearly mm-hmm. as violent, but certainly violent. I think many had a deeper sense that, that, that things were going to get much worse. Um, she did cross Russia on her private train to see Nicholas when he was apprehended. She did beg him to negotiate to have Alexandra and the, girl, and the girls and Alexei sent to a port city like Peterhof because, you know, they were trapped in the Alexander Palace and there's no, there was no escaping from there. They were being held at the time uh, under custody of the Duma um, remember that there's degrees of what happened at the time their lives weren't feared for, but I think Minnie had a sense that because Nicholas had abdicated willingly. Right. Um, and so that created a situation with, without a czar, sort of a strong czar at the head, sort of fighting to keep his throne and keep the country in check. She sort of knew what was coming, but I think many of them did not believe it was going to reach the level that it was going to reach. I don't think they, right. Um, unfortunately, that's been the lessons throughout history, aristocracy, the French Revolution, many others. You don't think they're coming for you until they're at your door. Until they're at their door. Um, but they, so she does escape. And um, you, you chose to, you made an interesting decision. You chose to end the book as she's sailing away from Yalta on the HMS Marlboro. And the wonderful uh, moment when the white officers passing her on their way to fight the Bolsheviks and they sing God Save the Tsar, which I think was the last time it was sung uh, in Russia uh, ever. And But but that's not the end. It's the end of your story that you tell, but it's not the end of Maria's story. Why did you choose not to follow her into exile? Well, you know, a life is infinite moments. A novel is a finite amount of words. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so um, always when I'm tackling a biographical subject, I have to decide... A couple of my novels have covered full lives, um, but only a few. Um, with Minnie, it was just simply too challenging. It would have required two volumes. And also, her story essentially does end at that moment. She's no longer the Dalai. The Romanoff Empress. She becomes an exile from a country she considers her own. What comes later is interesting, um, but it's also not the same life anymore. And um, Mm. I felt like it was the perfect place to end the book. You know, she, she never set foot in Russia again. Eventually she was brought back there long after her death when Russia and Denmark reached an agreement after the fall of the Soviet Union. And she's now interred next to those she loved the most. But um, her life essentially darkens from that moment onwards. And so, um, it was the perfect moment to end. And as a writer, you just sort of know when that perfect moment is. I, I never plot a book out that far in advance that I'm like, I know where I'm going to end it. I, I have an idea of what the arc of the story is going to be. And I sort of knew, well, I want to end the book once she goes into exile. But, I, you know, I had no idea whether I wanted to have a moment where she reunites with her sister Alexandra in England. It was just when I wrote that scene... That just seemed like it. Like when she realized, 
but, but you know they won't be forgotten but everything that she that she knows is gone and she knew i think she knew although she never publicly declared um because for reasons of the succession um that her sons were dead i think she knew i think she always knew. i think so yeah oh Oh, it's very emotional. But, you know, it, I think their their enduring appeal is the is the tragedy of it. it they're so romantic yeah. um, to us, Tay, because first of all, physically, they're incredibly beautiful people. Um, they're yeah. incredibly the photograph. We have photographs, so they really come alive for us, um, and they were physically beautiful. Um, they lived in this gilded world that we can't imagine anymore. I mean, we won't see the likes of them again the level of privilege and luxury and opulence. And then it's all taken away in such a brutal, violent fashion. Um, mm-hmm. But I think they, they continue to weave this, this haunting sort of mystique for us that we, we want so badly to believe, you know, that one of them got away, one of them got out. You know, one of them, for years, the Anastasia rumor, you know, the legend of Anastasia somehow made it out of that basement. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's possible. No, we know now that none of that is possible. But I think that that's why we continue to be fascinated by them, is that they they epitomize a time of history that we won't see again. And what, what came was so horrible and so undeserving, because in many ways now we know that murdering the Tsar and the Tsarina and the children, it wouldn't have changed anything. I mean, Nicholas had basically capitulated. Yeah. Um, but we knew that Lenin was terrified that, that somehow the white army would get hold of them and that would right. invigorate the white army cause. Well, and, and tell me, CW, do, do the Romanovs still have their claws in you? Are you, are you working on another Romanov novel? Uh, no, oh, actually, no. I, I just finished a novel about Sarah Bernhardt. It uh, was by Random House. <laughs> no, I tend to be very promiscuous in my subject matter. I can't. I would love to write more about Russia, um, not necessarily Romanovs um, or earlier Romanovs. I'd love to write about um, Ivan the Terrible, for example, or um, some of the earlier. Uh, but that would be very difficult to sell in today's market because, again, you know, publishers want very accessible subject matter that's recognizable to a great number of people. And I think, unfortunately. Russia has fascinating history um, and a fascinating monarchy, but they're not familiar to a lot of people. People know Nicholas and Alexandra, but you know, after Nicholas and Alexandra, people are really hard pressed to name or Catherine the Great, for example. So, um, mm. never say never. I may return, um, but for now. People have asked me, I've had, not, this book has touched a lot of readers and I've had a lot of readers write to me and be like, oh, you read about Alexandra next? And I'm like, really? <laughs> you don't think I did a good job the first time around? Um, oh, and I got a lot oh, of really? angry email. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, oh yeah, there's, they, uh, there's there are, very yeah, obsessives out there. People, yeah. There's a fanatical devotion to, you know, Alexander, you know, on this day in 1833, we know she, you know, people, yeah, people got, got very angry, you know, that how could you betray her? Yeah. Well, you know, it just goes to show how deeply ingrained they are in our psyche. Um, I took it all as, you know, was part and parcel of what 
what we get in the modern age of being accessible via social media and all the rest of it. But maybe realize, wow, you know, people really have some passionate feelings about these people. But I think you You were particularly respectful of of history and your subject matter. And I think um, thanks to you, lots of new readers are discovering the Romanovs and discovering one of the more fascinating characters um, in the, in the lineup. my, my, my chief goal is always like, I always say this, it's, I don't, it's not important to me whether you like my characters. Um, the moment I start imposing whether I like them or I don't like them, or the book becomes about my judgment of them, and it's not their story. I want you to understand them. And, you know, I've said this time and time again, I have a lot of sympathy for Alexandra. I believe nobody should die the way she died with her family and nobody should be put into the position she was put in with her child. Uh, but that doesn't negate what history know, what we know about history. And when people are, are, take on the roles of public figures as the czars did. Unfortunately, the responsibilities they, they take on are often daunting. What mainly I wanted to do was to, you know, Maria Fyodorovna is so little known. She's just this shadowy woman waiting for news of Anastasia in a Disney movie. <laughs> I really thought, you know, God, people really need to know more about this incredibly, this incredible woman who witnessed so much of the history that leads to the revolution and survives it. You know, she truly is a Romanov survivor. And her story is so full of, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. The drama she undergoes. Uh, the losses of her own children, you know, before and during the revolution and sort of her tenacity, her perseverance. Yeah. I think that's right. And as as a foreigner who went to Russia to marry a Russian, she's kind of a role model for me. <laughs> yes, someone, someone who did that particularly well. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, you know, all the odds were stacked against Absolutely. her. Yeah. Know? And she she comes through with shining colors because she... She does all the things that are needed to yeah. do to to make herself be important and to make herself be respected. And, and she wins this country's love yeah. through sheer perseverance. So it's understandable that she would have reacted to Alexander's complete lack of interest <laughs> in gaining any approval as you know, personally offensive. Oh. Well, I, I'm afraid that's about all we have time for today. But before I let you go, can you tell... Um, can you tell listeners where they might find uh, uh, more about you? Are you on social media? You have, I know you have a website. I have a website, www.cwgortner.com. I'm available. I have a Facebook page, CW Gortner. I'm on Twitter. Um, I have a Pinterest page um, oh. where I have a lot of photographs of the Romanovs. Um, so I have boards for each of my novels. They have a lot of wonderful photographs of Minnie and her family. And so, and a lot of people have told me they loved that because they, they, they want to see the people that they're reading about. Okay. Well, we'll put all of that in the show notes for, for everyone because there's, yeah, I, mean, you know, I used to think that I was alone in my Romanoff obsession, but then I got on Pinterest and I knew I was, I would yes, never be alone I again. <laughs> I know. I know. It's like your tribe, right? <laughs> I, I was like, oh my God, look at all these. And there were photographs I'd never seen before. I and, know. You know I, saw some, I was obsessed with Sergei, with uh, uh, Grand Duke Sergei. I really wanted, um, he's one of my favorite Romanovs. And, well, that should, be a no- that should be a novel. Yes, unfortunately, you know, it would be very hard to sell. But yeah, I would love to write about him in particular, I would love to write about because I think he faced a lot of challenges in his life. And he's, he's such a really fascinating character. And I think my love of him comes through in a little bit, you see, but there were all these wonderful boards devoted to him and, and pictures of him. It was just like, 
Well, I encourage listeners to head over to Pinterest to C.W. Gortner's um, Romanoff collection. And thank you to everybody who's listening for joining us today. This has been a discussion with C.W. Gortner about the Romanoff Empress, a novel of Tsarina Maria Fyodorovna, which is out in paperback uh, this week. C.W., thank you for a scintillating and fascinating discussion today. Thank you for having me. It's been great.